I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 4. I get to preach on my, in my favorite book on my favorite chapter. How's that? Didn't know I had a favorite, did you? I, I actually really love the Bible. But there's a reason why I love this chapter. And you're going to see why. It is one of the most practical chapters in the entire Bible. And it's going to help you. And today, as I share this message with you, I'm sharing information that has literally changed me as a person. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share things with you that's transformational. And if you will listen very carefully and take good notes, I would take notes, and I would begin to act on these things, I will make a guarantee to you, your life will never be the same again. This will begin to bring about a transformed life. Now, the story's told of two porcupines that found themselves in a blizzard. And they tried to huddle together to keep themselves warm, but the problem was they kept jabbing each other. You know, porcupines have quills. You know, and seeing that it wasn't really working out, they decided to move apart. The only problem was it was so bitterly cold that they needed to come together in order to survive. So they began to move together, and no sooner had they done that than they started to hurt one another. You see, they needed each other, even though they needled each other. Now, I didn't say that. Michael Green did, and I'm just quoting him. You know, this little story points out... Okay, didn't get that one. It'll come to you a little later. It's going to point out an an insightful thought. You know, there are many people... You know, and, you, and, and we've all had that experience. They're like porcupines. You know, they, they actually have some, you know, some painful edges to them. And we've all experienced that. And yet, the Bible commands us to love people. Does it not? It commands us to relate to one another. And I believe that God in His love cares so much about us that He wants us to not just know in an intellectual way, not just to know, like, you know, dogmatic theories and thoughts. He wants the gospel to be incarnated. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons why God became flesh was in order for us to identify and relate to him. Isn't that true? God wants us to understand what he's like. So it's not, God is not just an abstract thought. And God is not just, you know, how we, how we relate to him is a bunch of, you know, do's and don'ts. Because I think some people think it's that. But God wants to, to make himself real to us. And so in doing, in order to do that, God came to this planet. And God became a human being. And God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. And we call this the incarnation. God with us. And God has not given up on this idea. He loves this idea to somehow connect with the human family. So he becomes incarnational. And so what did he do was that... When Jesus ascended into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to live inside of us. So now God is within us so that God can be with people on the planet. And so the only, you know, the only way that many people are going to see what God is like is through us. That we are incarnating the life of Jesus. But how many know we kind of struggle with that sometimes? And the reason we struggle with it is, is that we're not quite like Jesus. Anybody figure that out? And so sometimes when we're trying, to, we're trying to be incarnational, you know, we kind of mess it up a little bit. And people don't really see Christ the way he really is. They see a, a kind of a defective model of it. And, and so we're, we're not perfect. We're imperfect. 
And we're trying to minister to imperfect people, but we're doing it imperfectly. And I think we have to accept that. That's the way it's going to happen. We're working and growing, hopefully, and maturing and developing so that we're becoming more and more like Jesus. And the more we become like Jesus, the more effective we become in in this incarnational ministry that God has sent into our world. You know, over the years, you hear criticisms like, you know, the church is this and the church should be doing that. And, you know, and before we say things like that, you know, or, you know, you say, and some of us probably said that, you know, I thought these guys were Christians. Or, you know, why doesn't this person, you know, why are they behaving like that? I thought they were Christians. But before you can say that, I think we need to say it this way. You know, I need to say, instead of saying that they ought to know better, we should stop and say, I ought to know better. You see, it's easy for us to criticize other people and their shortcomings and failures, but God is wanting us to not do that. God is wanting us to look at ourselves and say, God, what is it about me that you want to bring about transformation and change? And so I can learn to experience your grace in my own life. You know, saints are people who are set apart for his purposes. Now, you know, we have this great Neil Anderson material, and I love it, but I'm going to tell you one little part that Neil Anderson and I disagree. See, Neil Anderson is going to teach you that, you know, we're all saints and we shouldn't think of ourselves as sinners because he says that's problematic. And I'm going, no, we're both. We're both saints. We need to understand we're saints. We need to understand our identity in Christ. But we're also sinners in need of grace. And even though I receive Christ... I need to keep receiving Christ, if I can say it that way. Not that I'm getting saved every single day, but I need to keep receiving the, the life of Christ in me every day. I need to be a follower of Christ. It's not just making a decision for Christ. It's actually following behind Christ. It's, it's imitating Christ. It's becoming like Christ. And I need this every single day. So, you know... We're going to experience in this Christian life, in life itself, we're going to experience disappointments. We all have. And we're going to find that people are going to let us down. We're going to be disappointed. And we're going to even be disappointed with ourselves. How many have ever had that experience? You've been disappointed with yourself. Anybody have that? Yeah, I got my hand up. See, and I've been a Christian a long time, but sometimes you go, boy, I'm disappointed in myself. I thought I could handle that better. I, you know, I, I messed up over here. And I want to take ownership of where I failed because that's the only way we can grow is take ownership, not make excuses for ourselves, but say, Lord, help me to grow from this experience. You know, if we're looking to people, we are going to have disappointments. You see, right? And also we have expectations. That's a huge problem for all of us because sometimes our expectations are not realistic. And especially of ourselves and at times of others. We just have two amazing expectations. And sometimes we're even disappointed with God. Isn't that true? You know, God will never let you down. We sang that song. Now, can I just say something that's true and not true? You go, what do you mean? How can it be true and not true? It's true in the sense that God will always accomplish his purposes, but sometimes you and I have a different agenda than what God has. And so then we're disappointed with God and we feel let down by God. And we feel like, why did God, you allow this to happen in my life? But God's goal for your life is far greater for you than what you have for yourself. Isn't that amazing? He's got a greater goal for you. He's trying to make you like himself. Wow, that's a very lofty goal. And some of us, we're maybe not really 
saying. I'm really not trying to get to that point. But the reality is that's God's goal for you. He's going to use all kinds of things to make you more Christ-like. As a matter of fact, when our focus is on Christ, we're going to do a lot better. As a matter of fact, in Philippians chapter 3, you know, he's talking here about putting, you know, that we're the people who glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh or no confidence in our own abilities. We're not looking to ourselves. We're looking to Christ. And I think as we do that, we're going to get better and healthier and mature. And that's important in this life. Now, we all know that the treasure of the gospel is within us. And Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. He says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And so, you know, a lot of times you can have an extremely precious ointment inside of a little clay pot. And what's precious is the treasure inside. And that's the analogy Paul's using there. But, you know, when we look at ourselves sometimes, we're a little disappointed. We're the little clay pot. Some of us are fractured and broken and cracked and all the rest of the stuff. Some of us probably have a few points that we leak a little bit, you know. But I'm going to just say this, that the treasure is inside of us. And so as we look to Christ, that's where the hope is. And I think a lot of our disappointments are in ourselves. We look to ourselves. Then, you know, if we, if we falter or fail or we, we're not what we want to be, that's where it becomes very disappointing. And I say, let's put our focus on Jesus. That's where it needs to be. So we have this, you know, this whole realm of expectation in the church. The reason I'm bringing this up is because we're going to take a look today at two things that rob us of peace of mind. And really the first one has to do, I'm going to, I'm going to come back to some of this, but the first one has really to do with our interpersonal conflicts. Really, that's where a lot of the joy in our life is diminished, when we have conflict in our relationships. I think that's where a lot of the peace, you know, that the sense of well-being is diminished. I, I, I'm even convinced that a lot of our emotional sickness, or even our, the way our minds are working, even our physical sicknesses are tied into relational disconnectedness. And so it's really important that we get this straight in our minds because every one of us in this room, we've been disappointed. We've been hurt by people. True? Of course, that happens. And then I, have, I hear people all the time saying, you know, there's an expectation if we were just more like the early Christians. We were more like the early church, the New Testament church. And I keep thinking, which one? Because I've read the Bible, and they've all had problems. How many have read the New Testament? You start reading the epistles, and you realize these people, these people are saints. Have you read Corinthians? Paul calls them saints, but they don't behave like saints. How many have figured that out? They actually behave like sinners, you know, rather than saints. And he's trying to tell them, hey, listen, you may be saints, but you've got to address these things in your life. And that's something that we all need to understand. So sometimes we put expectations on people that they're unable to fulfill, and then we're wounded and disappointed by them. And we're setting ourselves up for those things. You know, let me go back here and just point this out. Marshall Shelley says this uh, about conflict. He says, conflict in the church is unavoidable. You should write that down. That's important. It's been that way from the beginning. The church began with a remarkable blend of close community and simmering conflict. As a matter of fact, uh, where you have people, you have conflict. That's just the way it works. And I was, I was preaching in this huge church in Long Island last Sunday. 
probably about 2,000 to 3,000 people. You know, I didn't envy the pastor one iota because when I'm looking over there, see, I'm, I'm a realist. I'm looking, he's, I said, he's got three times the problems I have. <laughs> I felt sorry for him, you know? And if you're in a church of 30, no, there was telling me there's a church in, in the Bronx or Brooklyn, 37,000 members. I said, wow, I feel even more sorry for that pastor because he's got more problems because how many know people bring problems? And there's more challenges and more difficulties, and we need to understand that. Um, The issue is not if we will experience conflict. Can we get that out of our head? The question is, how will we respond to the conflict? That's the more important thing. You know, why are we stunned? You know, I remember when I was first married, I, I met this beautiful girl. I was crazy about her, and we're going along, and then we have our first conflict. You know... That throws you for a loop. Does anybody that throw you for a loop? Any newlyweds? Anybody understand what I'm talking about? Go, what in the world happened here? What happened to Patty? She could have said, what happened to Paul? You know, right? That's what happens. We're just like, it's not that you're going to not have conflict. The issue is, how are you going to deal with those conflicts? That's the difference between developing and maturing and growing or remaining insecure and immature and blaming and not really addressing the issues. We're either allies working together or we actually become enemies and we drive each other apart. So it's important that we deal with conflict. As challenging and as painful as conflicts are, we must develop a greater awareness as well as strategies for addressing them. For too many people, unity means a lack of conflict. But often a lack of conflict speaks of a superficial relationship. We haven't really, you're not even addressing anything. And so Bill Heibel says something. He pastors even a a huge church. I've been there too. It's got 5,000 people per service, three service, 15,000 people. So I'm just going, I feel sorry for him. He's got even more problems, right? He says, the mark of community, which he defines as true biblical unity, is not the absence of conflict, but rather the presence of a reconciling spirit. Oh, I love that, because that's what it's all about. Think about it. The gospel is a message of what? Reconciliation. And so when you and I don't know how to work through our differences and become reconciled, we're not exhibiting the gospel at work in our lives. And so when we're telling people about Jesus and the goodness and the gospel and all the rest of it, and yet we're fighting with each other, how many know our actions are actually destroying the message we're communicating? So we need to understand how important it is to develop these strategies. And, and we're going to take a look here at how to, how many want to develop some strategies for dealing with conflict? Anybody think that might be a good thing to learn today? And that might even help our marriages and help our relationships with siblings or our employees or bosses or kids or whatever we're looking at. So I want to take a look at two things today that literally rob us of a peace in our minds, the peace of God, to rob us of peace. Because I believe that God wants to give us peace. It says, you know, that the fruit of the Spirit, the result of the Spirit at work in our lives is love, joy, and peace. But some of us don't have peace. We have conflict. And then we internalize it, and then we become physically sick, you know, that's true. That's the way it works. So let's take a look at this element of interpersonal conflicts. Learning how to work through difficulties is a mark of maturity. And the intolerance of differences is a mark of immaturity. 
In other words, it's important for us to actually have people in our lives that we may not even agree with. We can agree to disagree. And that's a sign of maturity. We're not intolerant, you know. Sometimes as Christians, we're accused of being intolerant. And sometimes maybe we are. We have to be careful, you know. I may not agree with someone's lifestyle. I may not agree with what they're doing. I may not agree with some behavior. But you know what? I can still love that person. I can still try to support them in different ways. Maybe not in all ways, but in different ways. We need to be able to do that. I think God does that, you know. So... How, does, how do we do this? Well, Paul starts out by making an appeal to come together. You know, I think most people find it easier to just go their own ways rather than do the hard work of working to get things together. Isn't that true? It's just easier to bag it. Forget it. I'll just start over again. And yet, some people, that's all they're doing is they're always starting over again. They're always starting over again. But you know what the problem is? They always go back to that same point in the experience. They never have grown up. They've never learned to address the problem, so they never grow up. They be, still remain immature. And now as we look back here, I notice something in chapter 3 that Paul begins to... This whole book is about relationships, if you haven't figured it out. In chapter 1, he talks about being of one mind, you know, have the same mind as Christ in chapter 2. Chapter 3, he says this, that we need to learn how to rejoice in the Lord. Now, why is having a heart full of rejoicing in the goodness of God important in relationships? Well, when your world's coming apart... It's really good to find something to be happy about, right? Listen to what he says here in Philippians 3. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. He's saying that's the most important thing. So lesson number one in dealing with difficult situations is we have to have the right attitude. That's what I'm talking about. We need to learn how to rejoice. And so, you know, learning to rejoice in the Lord. I, I said to someone this week, I said, listen very carefully, you know, in 1 Thessalonians, it says, In everything give thanks. Notice it doesn't say for everything. I don't think we can be thankful for everything, but I think we can be thankful in everything. There's a difference. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. In other words, no matter what's happening in your life, you and I need to be thankful to God. You and I need to learn how to praise God. In spite of what's happening to us, we can say, God, you're in control. Yes, my life feels like it's falling apart. Yes, there's a lot of things going on. Yes, there's conflict in our relationships. But I want to rise above that stuff. I want to continually have a thankful heart. I want to rejoice in you because then I can handle the strain and pressure that this difficult time has brought into my life. I want the right attitude. If I maintain the right attitude, it's going to help in that relational difficulty. Number two, we need to stop looking at our own position and our own uh, strengths and our own rights. Because you see in Philippians chapter 3, and I know that the context here, he's dealing with the insecurity of some Christians because the Jews, you know, had been there a lot longer and they had this exterior righteousness, and now you have this, you know, new faith that's founded in the Spirit. How many know it's harder to walk in the Spirit than it is to walk by rules and regulations? It's just harder to walk in the Spirit. And he says, for it is we, we're the circumcised. In other words, we're the people of God who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. But I want to apply this in a different way, and I think it's an, it's an appropriate application 
What I'm saying is, you know, sometimes we're in conflict with people. We want to be in the right, or we think we're in the right, or we, we think that we have more experience. And especially if we do have more experience, we can trust ourselves. And what I'm saying here, we need to be a little bit more humble than that. We need to recognize it's possible that we're not all right. Okay? That, you know, and I'm going to talk about this in a minute. Some psychologists have discovered this, but God knew it all along because I found it in the Psalms. This is a lot earlier than these modern psychologists. You know, and they're, 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 these guys, Joseph Loft and Harrington Ingram, they talk about this Jahari window. And they, they talk about what people see that I don't see. In other words, what they see about me that I don't see about myself. And isn't that true that we're blind to our own faults sometimes? And you know, sometimes we're, we're alienating and offending people. We don't even realize we're doing it. So we think we're right, but in reality, we could be in wrong. We could be in the wrong. And then the, I, that Jahari window talks about what people don't see about me and what I don't even see about myself, but God sees everything. And that's why the psalmist says, Search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. Why would we have to pray that prayer? Because you and I are blind to some things in our lives. And it may be causing problems in our relationships with people, and we're not even aware of it. And you know, it's really hard to deal with things when you're unaware that you've got a problem. How many know that's true? You can't even work on it because you're blind to it. And so I think this is a lot more humbling when we don't come and say, I'm right all the time. Hey, if you're really right, lay down your rights. And that's what Paul says in chapter 2. He said, you need to have the same mind that Christ had. He laid down his rights. And let God be the one who vindicates, just like he did the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, when Jesus suffered these things, then it says, and it, but it was God who lifted him up. And isn't it an amazing thing when you and I are laying down our rights and saying, God, I'm committing this situation to you. I may be right. I think I'm right. But I could possibly be wrong at some point. But I'm going to lay it down. And if I'm in the right and this person is in the wrong, I pray that you would vindicate me and I don't have to keep fighting against this individual. Wow. That's an interesting approach. But I think we can get that from looking at this text of Scripture. Now, how many know that when I say this in chapter 4, verse 1, which is where we are, you know, if we're going to have healthy relationships, he says here, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. And then he goes on to talk about a conflict in the church. But let me go back and say, it's really hard to stand firm in the Lord when you have unresolved personal issues with people. It's really difficult to do that. And you go, how do you know that this is one of the ways that you actually do stand firm? Well, I'll tell you why I know this is true. Because Satan's, one of his greatest strategies to destroy the church to destroy marriages, to destroy individuals, is to drive a wedge between people. How many know that's true? And he tries to do that all the time. That's, that's his number one strategy. And so the worst thing that happens, one of the worst things is when churches are fighting or when couples are fighting. Because who's going to suffer? The couple and the children. Who's going to suffer in the church? The people in the church. Well, everybody suffers. Who's the winner? Satan. That's what he wants. Okay, And how do you know this is true? Because Jesus was accused by the Pharisees of casting out demons. Remember that? By the power of, of Satan. 
by Beelzebub, which is another name for Satan. And they said, they, when they heard this, they said, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow, in other words, Jesus, drives out demons. Then Jesus knew their thoughts. Isn't this great? How, many, how do you know that Jesus is God? He can read people's minds. Isn't that amazing? Do you know God knows what you're thinking? Here's the good news. Satan does not. Don't put him on the same track. He can send fiery darts at you. You can have weird thoughts come your way, but he doesn't know what you're thinking. Okay? Jesus knew their thoughts and he said, every kingdom that is divided against itself will be ruined. Every city or household divided against itself will not stand. How many can see that the problem is once we allow whatever the problem is, whatever the issue is, whatever the difficulty is, eventually that's no longer becomes the problem. It escalates and then a whole bunch of hard feelings and offenses and difficulties come in the way and it becomes harder and harder to reconcile those situations. But it's not impossible. But he says what happens is the house falls, the marriage falls, the church crumbles, whatever it is. Jesus is pointing it out. If Satan is driving out Satan, his He's divided against himself. How can his kingdom stand? So really, to stand firm means you have to have a sense where you've worked through some of your issues and you're standing together. There's a sense of, you know, working in community. You're working in relationship. So look, at, look back to chapter 1, and verse 27. I don't have this on the PowerPoint. I didn't put it up for some reason. Look at back to chapter 127. Look what it says there. How do you know you're giving us a right understanding of this, Pastor? Well, look at verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you're standing firm in one spirit. In other words, you're together. You're unified. Striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Isn't he calling for unity? You see, this entire book is a call for unity. You don't realize it. I've studied this book. It's a call for unity. It's a call to come together. The fact that Paul does something very interesting in verse 2 of chapter 4. Then he says this, I plead with Eudiah and I plead with Synecdoche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Well, what, what did he just do? He named two people in the congregation who were of a different mind. What does that mean? They were of a different mind. They were contending with each other. They were creating disunity in the church. Paul identified them. Now, don't you think it's a little embarrassing? You know, you're having a church gathering. A letter gets sent in by the Apostle Paul. Pastor gets up, rolls it out, starts reading this letter. And then he, then he picks on two people by name and says, smarten up. How many think that's a bit embarrassing? You know? How many know that he's putting pressure on whom? He's putting pressure on the two principles to work it out. So you can learn something from that. You know, I think Paul knew a little bit about addressing relational issues and how it affects the church. Do you know, we have a funny idea. We, we think that, you know, if I'm having marriage problems, it's not affecting the church. Or if I'm having problems with an individual, it's not affecting the church. Listen, it all affects the church. Why? Because we are the church. You and I are the church. So when we're having these difficulties in our relationships, it's having a negative impact because it's a negation. It's a negative against the gospel. How do you know? Because the gospel is about reconciling, and here people are fighting. Can't you see the Satan laughing when people are fighting with each other? He goes, see, you guys aren't even living the gospel. 
You can say you're following Jesus, but you're not. This is the gospel. It's a gospel of reconciliation. So it takes a little bit of work in our lives to, to deal with these things. Um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is a very famous pastor in the last century, said, in a church, there's no such things as isolated problems. We are all interconnected, folks, and our lives are affecting each other a lot more deeply than we realize. And you know, one of the reasons, I'm going to say something, and I didn't say it in the first service, but I'll say it here. I believe one of the reasons why we don't experience real revival and what real revival really looks like is the day when people will humble themselves before God and say, I'm the problem, and start confessing their sins. And we had this happen in our church about 18 years ago when we did 40 days of prayer and fasting, and this church had gone through a major division, and people started standing up weeping and confessing their sins. And that was the day the church turned around. We had a real move of God. The church began to grow supernaturally. I watched God work in a supernatural way. We saw miracles happen. Because, you know, sometimes we get very, we get very, uh, what would I say, almost indifferent. We come to church week in, week out, week in, week out, hear sermons. That was good. We make critiques on the preaching, the music. We go home. That's the end of it. But I really believe what God is trying to do is work into our lives and get us to be authentic and honest and say, hey, I've got some issues with my spouse, with my kids, with this person in the church. I need to get this stuff straightened out. I've got to stop trying to be in the right. I need to humble myself. I need to go to them and say, forgive me. I, had a wrong, you know, I, I was wrong in this situation. And I think things will start popping. Things will start. You'll see things will happen in your life too. As a matter of fact, your prayer life will step up. How do you know that? Listen to what Jesus said about prayer. The disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray. What did Jesus say? Here's the last part of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So what we're saying is, Father, forgive me the way I'm forgiving them. So if I'm not forgiving them, what isn't happening? I'm not being forgiven. I have a blockage with God. And so it's really important that I start dealing with the stuff that's happening in this direction in my relationships with people so that I can have an open line to God. Remember we started, you know, we sang open the floodgates. I love that. Open the heavens, open the floodgates. And I'm telling you, the way to do it isn't just, you know, shouting and screaming and praising. It's by going to people and saying, I'm so sorry I sinned against you. I'm so sorry, you know, I did this or said this. And as we continue on, we're going to see that these things will change the nature and life of the church. As a matter of fact, these guys weren't dealing with it, so Paul had to address them and call them out on it. Uh, we could talk about maybe what these people were about. I'm going to skip this part. But just come to here. Look at Paul's plea to be of the same mind. He's quoting from chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. You can read that later. But the problem that was plaguing the Philippians, they were self-serving, self-seeking. So what does he do? Chapter 2, he gives three examples of people who were not self-serving and not self-seeking. You know who they were? Jesus, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, the pastor. These were people laying down their lives for the church. He says, those are your examples. As a matter of fact, he said, Let, you should have the same mind as that which was in Christ Jesus. What was that mind? Who thought it not robbery with God, but made himself of no reputation. He basically laid aside his rights. He, you know what he did? The theologians call it kenosis. 
Jesus laid aside what we would call his non-moral attributes. He laid aside his ability to be everywhere present at once, to know everything, and to be able to be everywhere, have all power. He laid aside those kinds of attributes in order to become a human being. He, he was willing to become obedient even to the point where he became a servant and he died a shame-filled death for other people. He died for us. He laid down his life for us. And then it goes on to say, therefore, God highly exalted him. God vindicated him. See, that's the point. You and I need to do this. We have to lay down our rights. This is a culture filled with rights. Lay them down and let God vindicate you. That's hard to do sometimes. But you know, if I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm becoming like him, if I do that, do you know what would happen if we started doing that in our marriages and say, you know what, honey? I'm so sorry. It doesn't matter, you know, if I think I'm right or wrong. That's not the issue. I value you above this issue. You are more important to me than what, what this, this concern is. We can do this together. We need to be working together. We're not the enemy. You're not my enemy. I have another enemy. It's not flesh and blood. You're my partner. We're in this together. We start thinking like that. We, we get like that even as, as staff in the church or, you know, as people in the congregation. And instead of, you know, saying, well, we could do this or we could do that. Hey, listen, why don't we come along and affirm and encourage and pray for. And if somebody's messing up, we can, yeah, it's okay to talk to them privately and be gracious about it. That's, that's all legitimate stuff. But at the end of the day, if we are really highly supportive, you know what's going to happen? This place is going to explode. Because people need to know there's safety, there's love, there's encouragement. These are all important things. The other thing is, uh, let me give you the two things Paul did. First of all, he mentioned it publicly because nobody was dealing with it. Here's what we need to learn from that. You cannot ignore problems. Deal with it. Just deal with it wisely. Number two, Paul did not take sides. How many think that's interesting? He never said Uadiah or Synecdoche was right. He just didn't take sides. He told them both to have the mind of Christ. He both told them to get their act together. Do you know what happens usually when, when we're in a conflict with a person? What do we tend to do? Come on now. What do we tend to do? What? You know what we tend to do? We tend to go to somebody else and tell them how good we are, how right we are, how wrong they are. Isn't that true? Come on now. Why do we do that? Because we want to be understood. We want to be loved. We want to be supported, right? And you know what the problem with that is? It's a sin. Ouch. So a lot of us sin in this room when we go look for support. Jesus did not teach us to do that. You know what he did? Um, well, Jesus said, go to your brother and show him his fault just between the two of you. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother over. Because you know when we go to somebody else, usually we go to a mercy giver, they get offended. If you ever get it straightened out, they can't get it straightened out. Then you've escalated, and the you know psychologists call, call this triangulating. You're bringing other people in. And one of the first rules to deal with these issues is to make the two principles get involved. So you know when people come to me, I say, hey, have you talked to that person about it? Well, no. I said, well, don't talk to me. You need to go talk to that person and work it out between the two of you. And then later on, I'll say to them, did you go talk to that person? Yes. How did it work out? Man, it was great, Pastor. We got it straightened out. We're good. 
I said, great. That ended it. Hello? Just teaching you. Let me move on to the second thing. I'm going to be real quick here. Is, you know, peace is lost when we get in difficult circumstances. And some of you are there. Loss of a loved one, maybe a death or divorce or a loss of income leading to financial pressures. And we start worrying. Anybody here struggle with worry? Anybody have a problem with worry? Okay. Here, I struggle with worry. I'm being honest. I was a brand new Christian. I had a lot of insecurity, had a lot of anxiety. And this was why this is my favorite chapter. I'm going to tell you how God helped me address my anxieties. Okay? Anybody battle with anxieties? Let's be honest. Any anxiety? Anybody battle? Okay, that's good. That's good. Watch. Here's your three or four verses that'll change your life. Okay? I have a doctorate degree. Here's your prescription. Write it out. I'm going to make you do something and it's going to change your life. And you know how I know? Because it changed mine. Look at verse four. We are told, first of all, to rejoice in the Lord. How many know that what we tend to do when we have bad circumstances, we're focused on what? The circumstance. And it puts us down. Focus on God. Rejoice in the Lord. Verse 5. It says, you know, this is the proper attitude towards others. Let your gentleness or forbearance be evident to all. You know. And then he says, why? Because the Lord is with you. The Lord is near you. God is in that situation. You need to know, every time we're talking to people, Jesus is standing right there. I want you to think about everything you're doing from this point on. Jesus is right with you. In every conversation you're having, he's standing there listening. How many say, if I thought that way, I might change the way I talk to people? Don't you think we ought to think that way? You know, if you can't talk to somebody with the thought that Jesus is standing here listening to what I'm saying right now, then you shouldn't be saying those things. That'll end a lot of stuff that we say to each other. There's a lot of nasty stuff that's said. But if Jesus is standing there and you're looking at Jesus in the face while you're talking to this person, what are you going to say to them? Wouldn't that change a few, few words? I think there'd be some different conversations. Here's the next one. The biggest problem is in our attitude. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but rather with prayer. And what is striking about this prayer, I love this, is simply um, that it, it'll give us an equilibrium. But, but even deeper than that, believing. When we're praying, we're actually believing that God is and that he's greater than the greatest problem. So all of the things that I'm worried about, okay? And most of the stuff we're worried about, we can't control. And it's usually the future, right? Come on now. If, if this would happen, or I'm concerned about that, or I'm worried about this... We're actually worrying about stuff that's not even happening. Okay, number one. Number two, think about it. God is bigger than your problem. And prayer should reflect that. And notice what it says about how to pray. It's, this prayer is accompanied with thanksgiving. That's what I love about this verse. Look, go back to verse six here. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Now, why is, why are you thanking God? Because it's a different kind of prayer. The fact that prayers accompany with thanksgiving, I think is significant. It's not a prayer of desperation, but a confident heart expecting God to answer. How many know when you're praying with thanksgiving, you're saying, Lord, thank you that you're on the scene. Thank you that you're bigger than this problem. You're greater than this problem. Thank you that you have the answer, and I'm looking to you for the answer. 
I'm so thankful for that. I'm thanking God, and that's a believing prayer. How many see that? You know, well, maybe God will do this. No, no, no. And then we have a new, then, then we can expect peace. Look at verse 7. When we do this, it says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. In other words, it doesn't make sense will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, it's going to be like a, a fortress. It's going to protect your heart. Do you know why some people, when they go through trials and tribulations, they just have a peace? You know why? Because they've entrusted it to God. And God is now guarding their hearts from all of that anxiety. How many want to be free of anxiety? Isn't that a great way to live? Free of anxiety. I love that. You know, I can say it. I, I primarily live free of anxiety. And once in a while, something will come and I'll say, and then I'll remember this verse immediately. This is my go-to verse. And I just start quoting these verses. And then what happens, and this is what usually happens when we have a problem. We pray, isn't this true? We feel good for a minute or 10 or a day, but the next day we're back to where we were. How many have had that experience? Anybody being honest? Anybody had that experience? Listen to what he says. Here's what you need to do, he says, so that you don't get locked into the circumstance again. Verse 8, he says, now I want to help you. He says, finally, brothers, whatever's true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. How many remember the days when we used to have little tapes? I know younger people, you may not know this, but we had tapes, you know. And if you don't know what it is, Google it. Okay? Even though vinyl is making a comeback, I don't know if tapes are, but tapes you could record things on and we'd, you know, record songs on. And, you know, they've done a study on the human mind. And this is what happens. And Patty, my, she, she's great. She's always researching and reading things to me. And she, this week she says, you know, it's interesting. I was reading how the human brain works. And when you are negative and you're a complainer, it runs a reel through your brains and it affects your chemicals and everything else. They've studied this. So you become entrapped in what I call bad messaging. But you know what the good news about tapes were? I like this part. You could, you could actually record over a tape. Okay? And I want to give you the good news. You can record over your bad messaging in your head. Isn't that an awesome thought? And some of you, you've got bad messaging going on in your head. And so the good news is you need to put good messaging in so it can erase the bad messaging in your head. I love that. So he says, you know, some of you, you know, I know there's some people, they just are glued to the news. But how many know the news? I don't know how many which ways you can look at a story. I mean, no kidding. It's bad news and they look at it 25 different ways. You know, once I've heard it one time, I don't need 25 analysis of the bad news. But some of you, you're just camped in bad news and your brain is always there and everything's negative. But I want to encourage you. You know, I keep track of a few things on the news, but for the most part, I stay away from all the bad news because I'm busy filling my head with the good news. And so my mind is far more positive than it is negative. And so when I look at problems, I see it in a positive way rather than a negative way because of this verse of Scripture. So let me close now as we, the service. When we have peace with God, we will have the peace of God. And I said something earlier in the service. I said, how many here you have relational difficulties and you're having an issue with forgiveness? Now you're having a difficulty with the peace with God business. 
well, yeah, you may be a Christian. You may know Christ, but you're, you're cutting off the relationship with God because you've got this conflict going on with this person. We've got to deal with that stuff. We've got to let that stuff go so we can have that open channel with God, okay? And then, even though there may be some very challenging circumstances in your life, what do we need to do with that? Instead of worrying about all the what-ifs, we need to just commit it to God with thanksgiving, and then we need to focus in on the positive things that God, God, you're greater than cancer. How many think God's greater than cancer? Well, he is in my books. Cancer is real, but God is realer. I just made up a word because I want to get your attention. God is bigger and he's better. Amen? So we're going to stand this morning. And we're going to have you just going to close in a word of prayer. We're going to be honest with God today. This was a very diagnostic type of sermon. How many sense that? It's almost like we were doing surgery today. Did you feel it? But here's the thing. If you go home now and do nothing with this, you're going to stay exactly where you are. You have to put this into practice. That's the only way you're going to get free. So with every head bowed this morning, how many here, you're going to be honest. You say, you know, pastor, I've got some relational issues. Just raise your hand real quick. I've got relational issues. Raise them up. Be honest. Okay. How many here say, I need God to help me to forgive people right now? Just raise your hand. We're going to deal with this stuff today, right now. Got to let this stuff go. I want to receive the grace of God in my soul, so I'm going to let go of all this garbage inside of me. That's good. Hands are raised. So Lord, right now you see all these hands. We're letting it go. We're making a decision by your grace to forgive this person. Even though emotionally, I don't feel like I'm doing anything. I'm choosing right now. Just say the name of the person right now. I forgive, just say, I forgive whoever that is. Just say it, I forgive that person in Jesus' name. Just say it right now. Don't wait, you know, we, we're so emotionally driven. Well, I'll, I'll do it when I feel like it. Or I'll do it when they ad- admit to me they're wrong. It may never happen. Choose to do this right now. You're opening up the floodgate of God in your soul this morning. How many here today, you say, Pastor, I'm going through very challenging circumstances in my life. Just raise your hands. I'm going through very challenging circumstances in my life. Many of you are. How many say, I want the peace of God? Raise your hand. I want the peace of God that sustains, that will actually, you know what? I'll have a peace even in the midst of the difficulty. God can keep my heart from fretting and worrying. And here's your homework assignment. I want you to begin to thank God. I want you to thank him because he loves you. I want you to thank him because he's forgiven you. I want you to thank him because you're his child and that God has good for you and he knows about this situation and he can handle it. Even though you and I maybe struggle with things that are greater than ourselves, God can handle our problem today. God is bigger than your trouble. And I'll make a guarantee that your trouble eventually will not be there. Eventually, you'll go through that experience. You'll be on the other side of your trouble. And you will look back and say, God, you were faithful. You might be in it right now, but God is there in the trouble. He's with you right now, and he cares about you. You're his child. And you say, well, why did he let me go in this trouble then, Pastor? He's doing a work in your soul. Soul work is a great work. Soul work is the most important work on the planet. God is very committed to making you like himself. 
And you know, I've had to go through hurts and disappointments and sorrow, you know, and misunderstanding and criticisms and all of those experiences. And I've had to learn how to forgive. I've had to learn how to endure. I've had to learn these things by going through experiences. That's how you learn. And I want you to know God is there. And God is greater than your circumstances. Amen? Amen. So I'm going to pray for us today. Now, you've been given a lot of information today. Some of you, you should have been taking notes. I believe God can change the way your brain is working right now. He can even change the chemicals in your brain if you'll begin to think differently. Did you hear what I just said? This has been proven, folks. If you got up in the morning every day and read the Word of God, if you got up every day and began to worship and thank God, if you began to practice this, I guarantee you something's going to change. How many know that if you start exercising, endorphins hit your body? You know what? That's those little fun things inside of your system that makes you feel happier. Do you know that? One of the reasons I'm a happy guy is I exercise. I have, I have to have endorphins. I couldn't stand the stress of being a pastor if I didn't. I'm serious. You guys don't know this, but I exercise just to have some endorphins in my system so I can handle the stress. But I don't just do exercise. I worship God and read His Word so I can handle. I, I need a lot of endorphins in my system. Some of you say, well, I don't meet as many as you, Pastor. I need a lot. And so I'm practicing all of these things because I need this much help in my body and in my spirit. And I'm trying to pass this on to you. Okay, so Lord, I thank you for your precious people this morning. And I pray today that we're going to let go of all that garbage inside of us. We've chosen to forgive this morning and we've chosen to give our problems to you because you are bigger than our troubles today and we believe that you love us and are a good God and care for us and you're going to take us through. And we're going to learn a whole bunch of good stuff about who you are. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.